0: chapter 6 verse 1. Now in those days, when the disciples were growing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Luke highlights the triumph of the church, then the negativity of Ananias and Sapphira, and then he goes to the positive highlights of the church again, and then he goes back to the negativity And this is intentional. It's not just a a, a complaint session on the church. And you know another reason they suck? Here's what it is. Another reason why they're crappy? Here's another reason. Okay, this isn't a rant against the church and its flaws. Nor is it like, we're so amazing. We did all these things. Unlike your generation today. It's, this is the reality. This is the reality. And by going back and forth, not only is this a very popular thing, or... A very common thing, a hallmark of Jewish literature, is called interchange, where you go back and forth between two contrasting things. But it also keeps things balanced enough that you're not just going to the depression, and negativity, they're lifted up, that kind of stuff. It's just, just enough back and forth to help you get a good, accurate picture of what's going on. At this time in the early church, Jerusalem was divided into two groups of Christians. So we have the the Jews. The Jews are the the non-believers, the part of the, the Judaism. And within the church, though, we had two kinds of Jews at this point. We had the Hebraic Jews, or what we can call the native Jews, and then what's called the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews. Now, they're all ethnically Jews. They're all descendants of Abraham. However, what has happened is over the time two things have happened. When they were taken off into exile, many of the Jews, when they were allowed to come back under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they were brought back. And most of the Jews did not return back to Israel. And so there was a couple of scenarios that happened. First, when the, when the Assyrians came and took the northern tribes away, they left a few of the poor people behind, who then began to intermarry with the pagan people after the exile. And then Nebuchadnezzar came along later. In 586 BC, the, the Babylonians came and took Judah and left only the poor behind too and took the, Judah off. The vast majority of the ten tribes in the north, the Israelites, were just killed. And those who weren't killed were then dispersed across the empire or left behind and began to intermarry. So pretty much all of those tribes became intermarried with all the other people around them, or they were dead. And then when the Jude- Jude- Judah was taken off, many of them prided themselves in their ethnic purity. So a lot of them did not intermarry with the people off in Babylon, and the poor stayed true here. So when they came back out of exile under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they really... Ezra and Nehemiah started getting very dogmatic about ethnic purity, wrongfully so, non-biblically so. And they really started going into genealogies of people. Oh, no, you're not a pure Jew like 20 generations back. Okay, you're not exactly one of us. We don't need your help rebuilding everything. And, And sometimes it was that extreme and sometimes it wasn't, but it was always there in some kind of a way. And so they sent them away. And when the the, the Jews in the north who had been left behind and intermarried with everybody and became known as what we know today, the Samaritans, when they came back and said, you're back, we would love to help you rebuild the temple, they're like, no, you're not pure-blooded. And so Judah started over the years becoming just the pure-blooded Jews. We're closer to the temple. You live further away. Some people never returned in the scattering. Other people came back many generations later, and they were like, I know maybe my parents weren't committed to coming back like they were supposed to under the command of Jeremiah, but I'm not my parents, and I want to be here. And they're like, ah, oh, but you weren't here in the earlier generations, and you're not pure-blooded. And the, the Jews of Jerusalem started getting this idea of first-class and second-class Jews. And those were part of the diaspora, the scattering. The ones who lived further away from the temple didn't come to the temple as frequently because they lived further away. They began to replace the temple with the synagogues and that kind of stuff. And, and though they had synagogues in Jerusalem, they also had the temple. And they, they started having this idea that you've intermixed with the Greeks. You've even adopted Greek names. You've adopted Greek cultures and that kind of stuff. And even with the Jerusalem Jews adopted Greek names, it's still, yeah, but we're, we're still not doing it like you're doing it. And it doesn't mean that every Jew in Jerusalem thought this way, but the elite, the intelligentia did. And they trickled down to whatever degree to other people in Jerusalem. And so there's this idea that we are the native, pure Hebrew speaking Druze that came back to Jerusalem from the very beginning. We have been close to the temple. You, you, you came and visited because of Pentecost. You're from somewhere else. You came later. Your parents weren't as committed. You, you've intermixed with other people. You've adopted a Greek kind of a culture more than what we would be okay with. And so they're all converted into Christianity. Some scholars teach that this is the Jews, Jewish Christians versus the Gentile Christians, but that's not what's happening, and not yet. That will come, but not yet. Right now we're in the heart of Jerusalem. This is in the very early days of the Christian church, when everybody was on fire for Christ, and there's still that honeymoon, I just accepted Christ, and I'm on fire, and I'm going to change the world and do everything right. In the very, very, very beginning, it's, but you're a second-class Christian, just like you are a second-class Jew. And whether they're saying that intentionally and outwardly, or they're just thinking it inwardly, the reality is in their actions that thinking and that mentality is coming out in the fact that they're just conveniently ignoring the hellenistic jewish christians whether they realize it or not whether it's intentional or not whether they kind of do but they're just going to justify it how in the face of everybody it is how subtle it is we don't know but it's happening Because somewhere deep inside, they have bought into this philosophy of what kind of Jews those people are, and therefore what kind of Christians they now are. The widows, who are completely dependent upon the culture to take care of them, because of the way that it's structured, they're not having their needs met. And so we saw two places where people were selling things to meet the needs, and whenever there was a need, it was being met. That's not lasting long as the outside jewish people are coming more and more to christ and the the, the 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 internal parts of the church are becoming more diverse and more different groups of people that meaning everyone's needs is not happening like it should and so the hellenistic jews are coming and saying this isn't cool our people are being ignored they're not being taken care of. There's real needs here. We, and And the other thing, too, is the Hellenistic Jews are probably more dependent upon the native Jews because the native Jews would have been more wealthy overall. Overall, consistently across the board, the native Hebraic Jews would have been far more wealthy. They would have had a higher percentage of wealthy people, which means the Hellenistic Jews would have even a harder time taking care of their own people. There's a sense of we're being left out, and all of us have been there and know how much that hurts. So the 12, this is one of the very few cases. Um, this is the only time, actually, the phrase the 12 is used by Luke. And probably the most likely reason it's being they're being called the 12 right now is to intentionally distinguish them from the seven, um, the seven people that will, you want to call them deacons. Um, they're not called deacons here, but that kind of an idea. To distinguish them from the seven deacons that are going to be picked later in this chapter or in this paragraph. And So this is the only time they're mentioned, the twelve, called the twelve. So the twelve called the whole group of the disciples together and said, It is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables. Now that sounds a little harsher and derogatory than what it probably was. But, be, but carefully select from among your brothers seven men who are well attested, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we may put in charge of this necessary task. So the disciples say, we have been called specifically by Christ to spread the gospel and teach. We cannot wait on tables and attend to the food pantry and the homeless shelter and that kind of stuff and and take care of these needs. Now what this doesn't mean is that's inferior and that's below us. They're obviously out there healing the sick and the poor and even the marginally like unclean. Don't you dare touch them and go towards them. So it's not like this is below them. What they're saying is we know clearly what our mission is. And it is not this. Not that we never will do this, but this is going to take a... a, This is going to be an office. This is going to be time-consuming. This is going to require somebody doing this on a daily basis. And it's one thing for us to roll our sleeves up and help you here and there, but we cannot administrate it. And that's the point. It's not saying this is below us, we will not do this, we will never help. It's just that we cannot administrate this. I I can't administrate the children's ministry and the outreach ministry and the youth ministry and the homeless shelter ministry and the disciple ministry, right? Nobody is capable of administrating every single ministry that there is. And that's what the disciples are saying. That's what the apostles are saying. And so they are going to delegate it. Now, this is very powerful. Because what it shows is that the early apostles don't see themselves as the only authority. They see themselves as a specific authority in a specific area and ministry of the church, but not as the authority over every area of the church. They don't have an iron grip on the church and everything at go happens. They are not micromanaging everything. They're not having to be there, making every decision, everything, because God forbid it get out of my vision and my control. They have clearly seen the work of the Holy Spirit. They clearly know that God will do what he wants to do. And so what they're saying is, we're going to delegate this. And there's no sense that they're going to come in and check in on them. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be hierarchy. I'm just saying, this is a very good example that there is no power being exercised over other people by the apostles. They have a ministry, they have a calling, they have a purpose, and that purpose is overwhelmingly huge in sharing the gospel and teaching. And there are many other people in the body of Christ who are well-equipped to handle that mission and that purpose, which is huge and has to be dealt with on a daily basis. And they clearly live, but they're also not going to say, whatever, just pick somebody, I don't care. They're not careless, and they're not without wisdom. And so they ask for certain qualifications to be set. Select from among your brothers first. We are not going to pick Hebraic native Jews to rule over and determine how your non-Hebraic Jews are going to handle things. You need representation. And the only people that can truly accurately and truly authentically and caringly meet the needs of these people are as if they come from those people. So the first criteria is, people who are from that group care for those people more than people who are not from that group. Therefore select from that group. That's the first criteria. Men who are well attested, they must have a track record. This isn't Jimmy Joe Jew down the street who just came into the church yesterday and has no experience in administration whatsoever. And you're like, we're desperate for help and you can breathe. Come into our children's ministry. Okay. This is, they must be attested. They, they, They must have been a Christian for at least a little bit. They must have some qualifications for administration. But most importantly, what this word truly means, they must be respected as men of character. That's what the word attest to truly means. That when they're given responsibility, does it mean that they don't have a learning curve to do? No. Does it mean that there won't be struggles? Does it mean that they have to perfectly have gotten a master's degree in administration of Hellenistic Jews and food distribution? No. Could it be the first time that they've ever handled this kind of a project? Yes but they must be attested as someone of good character who is responsible with things. That's the criteria. So the third one is that they must be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And this is debated whether spirit and wisdom should be seen as one thing or two separate things. But there's an idea that, yes, you can have wisdom outside the church, but the only wisdom that truly matters is the one that's being led by the Spirit. Because I feel like I've been gifted with a gift of wisdom. But I also know where my wisdom has also just been my wisdom. No matter how gifted you are, there's still times where you've done it in your flesh, in your energy. And you've thought that it was God, but it really was just you. And maybe it was a couple days later or years later that you realize, yeah, that wasn't really God at that moment. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means we're flawed. And, and we are, we struggle, and so the spirit and wisdom together are important. And so they they must have evidence that they have heard the spirit, that they've been led by the spirit, that fruit has come from those decisions, validating that the spirit was the one who guided them in doing that. And and that's very important. What you have is people taken from that group to represent that group, who demonstrated that they have godly character within themselves and have demonstrated that they're led by the Spirit and have produced fruit. That it gives evidence that it truly was the Spirit. Which means that they have been in the community long enough to have a reputation. This is the criteria the disciples have given. And then these three things, you find them in seven men, and then they are in charge. They're in charge. Not we're in charge. Not that they're going to report to us every Sunday. And like I said, not that there's anything wrong with that at certain times in certain areas, but that they are in charge. This is incredible. Leaders who are willing to delegate power to other people and, and, and relinquish a, a great amount of power to other people is highly respected. Okay? And, 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 and I personally, when I read the Bible, I really do not believe in a one-man show or a one-woman show in the church i really have a hard time justifying. i don't mean the insult or step on any toes of any church that you go to but the idea of that one man or one woman or two men or two women running the entire church and being the head over everything um just bothers me it doesn't seem to be biblical i'm not confident enough in any one person being able to accomplish everything that needs to be done in the church in their own energy it also tends to be why a lot of families of pastors get to tend to be sacrificed on the process of that. And, um, and I, we've seen too many leaders in big churches fall um, because of the strain. I think a lot of their moral falling was not that they were just horrible bad people, but they were just under an incredible amount of stress, horribly isolated from anybody else, and they medicated themselves. And so I really do see that the, 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 the true calling is a diverse group of elders, who can share the burden so that neither, nobody is really overly over burnt out. No one is dependent upon one strength and many weaknesses. And nor can one person just really seize the power and, and abuse it. And, and, and this is what we're seeing here. Delegation. Seven men. Not just one man. Twelve disciples teaching. Seven men distributing food. And we're going to see elders and other things starting to show up in the church. Elders in many churches. Many elders in one church. And this is the idea that we are the body of Christ, not just as disciples and people, but we're the body of Christ in hierarchy and leadership as well. And this is what we're seeing that's happening, that this needs to be delegated. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of word, and the proposal pleased the entire group. Everyone was happy. Well, enough. Enough. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, with Philip, Procurus, Nechnor, Timon, Parameus, and Nicholas, and a Gentile convert to Judaism from Antioch. They stood these men before the apostles, who prayed and placed their hands on them, and the word of God continued to spread the number they spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. When the apostles laid their hands on these seven men, this should not be seen as a formal ordination of making them pastors, teachers. What it is is that it is showing that they have blessed them. So the notice it was the community that picked them. It was not the disciples. It met the approval of the community. That's that's very important. If you put people in power to be over something, and most or all, or even a large percentage, do not respect nor back those people, then that's going to create even more problems. Because then what you have is grumbling and complaining and rebellion and chaos. But the people picked them. The people approved of it. The people saw that this was a good idea. And then the people presented them to the apostles. And the apostles publicly put their hands on them and said, We bless this. We bless your choices. We bless the Spirit leading you people. We bless them. And we hand it over. And so everybody knows that they're approved. The disciples could have said, We believe in delegating. We're not going to try to control everything. See you later. And they walk away. And then somebody in the church could say, the apostles didn't pick them. That's why they're bad. Anytime you write, because they're not going to do everything perfectly. And no matter how much the people like him right now, there's always going to be eventually somewhere like, well, wait a minute. I didn't know I was voting for him to make that decision. Okay, right? <laughs> it takes long for the people to say, yeah, but. And they could easily say, because it's the apostles. They didn't pick them. If we had apostles pick them, everything would be better. Or the apostles could have picked them and walked away. And then they turn out to not be good. And the people are like, see, those apostles, we didn't pick them. They didn't. And then they just walked us away and left us with these corrupt leaders. Right? But the fact that everybody was involved in the right way and the right balance. And it shows that everyone amened this. Everyone did. And yes, there's going to be complaints still. And there's going to be problems. And Stephen's going to mess up and make mistakes. But in the end, everybody knows that everybody approved of it and God was involved in it. And that's important. That's important. And I'm not saying that this is the way that you should structure a church with 12 apostles and 7 deacons and they do this and they do that and that. What I'm saying is that this is the model for how to delegate, how to pick things, how to determine qualifications. Peter Luke is not saying structure your church like this. He's saying, there's great wisdom here and how you delegate, pick people, approve of them, and back them up. That's the point. That's the point. This is the model. And so the gospel began to spread even more because everybody was in their proper place doing the proper thing. And what's interesting is even a large amount of priests now, the priests are from the Sanhedrin. The priests are from the Sadducees. And everybody knows the Sadducees are the most politically power, money, and Rome-corrupted group of people. I didn't say every single priest was, but that group. And yet, that group is beginning. It doesn't say a couple priests came. It's say a large number of priests. And not the ones on the outskirt, away from D.C., but the ones in the heart of Washington, D.C., so to speak. They began to come to Christ. Tanhill says this, The early church had problems, but according to Acts, it also had leaders who moved swiftly to ward off corruption, find solutions to eternal conflicts, supported by people who listened to each other with open minds and responded with goodwill. I think that's a very powerfully concise statement. Yes, they had problems, but they didn't push it off and be like, I don't want to deal with that. They didn't allow it to grow and fester and become an open wound and a cancer that spread. They moved swiftly and they dealt with it. Nor did they on the other extreme say, my way or the highway. It was done with group approval. They had open minds. They allowed the people to speak. They allowed them to input. And then they took the input of the people and actually made decisions based on the input. And so you see swift action to deal with the problem and yet the people are allowed to have a great influence in how it is done. Constable says this, this pericope helps us see several very important things about the priorities of the early church. First, the church showed the concern for both spiritual and physical needs. Its leaders gave priority to spiritual needs, prayer, and the ministry of the word, but they also gave attention to the correcting injustice and helping the poor. This reflects the Christian's commitment to loving God wholeheartedly and loving their neighbor as themselves, God's great ethical demands. Second, the early church was willing to adapt its organizational structure and administrative procedures to minister effectively and to meet the needs. It did not view its original structure and practices as binding but adapted traditional structures and methods to facilitate the proclamation of the gospel and the welfare of the church. In contrast, many churches today try to duplicate the form and the functions of the early church because they feel bound to follow these. Basically, the idea is they know that structure has to sometimes change. Now, I'm not saying that you adopt a worldly structure, and move away from elders that are clearly taught in the Bible and move to this and mimic, but that maybe you need to look at the needs of your church as new needs come in because your ministry is spread over here or your ministry has been very successful here and things are well organized, but now you have a new thing here and you have to restructure who is doing what and how you're going to do, how many people you have on this team now in order to meet things. Rather than saying, but we've always had seven people as deacons. We can't have anything more than that or less. Deacons have always been responsible for this very specific thing. Yeah, but that's not a need anymore. We have a new need. I know, but we've always done it this way. It doesn't mean mimic your structure to be like the world. It doesn't mean cut it off at the knees and burn it down and start all over again. It just means be willing to adapt, be willing to modify and toward the needs. Third, the early church did not practice some things that modern church does. Rather than blaming one another for the problem that arose, the disciples corrected the injustice and continued to give prayer and ministry of the word priority. Rather than patronistically feeling that they had to maintain control over every aspect of the church and life, the apostles delegated authority to a group within the church and let them solve the distribution problems. These are the things that we can learn, not to model ourselves after that structure, but the way that they did it, how they handled it, The wisdom that was involved. These are the things that we should be learning from Acts. So yes, in a way, there are things that we can learn from the early church. And there are things that we can do like the early church did it. But this doesn't mean we have to have the same structure. The same structure. Could that structure work for your particular church? Yes. If you pray and allow the Spirit to say, That's actually what I want you to do in your particular church. But not because it's there. We will do it. That's what we need to protect ourselves from. So that brings us to the climax of persecution, the next section. Luke presents the events of Stephen's martyrdom in Jerusalem in order to explain the means that God will use to scatter the Christians and the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the furthest parts of the earth. Now this is the climax. We've seen internal conflict and external conflict. And now it's going to reach the external conflict. It's going to come down on the church so hard that it's going to lead to outright persecution. And this outright persecution is going to scatter the church, which is going to fulfill the Great Commission. And God is going to use the death of Stephen, the intense persecution on the church, in order to scatter them into the ends of the earth, to leave Jerusalem, into Judea, and Samaria, and the furthest parts of the earth. Now Stephen, one of his men, the seven, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So this clearly shows us that his 24-7 job was not just delegating food. He was out there preaching the gospel too. And in fact, what's really cool about this is it shows with Stephen, one of the seven, and also later with Philip, also who's one of the seven, that they were also doing miracles and healing people. And this shows you that the ability to do miracles and heal people and cast out demons was not exclusive to just 12 men. This is a work of the Spirit in the lives of believers. Period. So he was out there. With power, performing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. But some men from the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, both Cyrenus and Alexandrians, as well as some from Sicilia and the Providence of Asia, meaning powerful men from different parts of the Jewish world, argued with Stephen. Yet they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So, not only that, he was incredibly wise and well-knowledge in the Bible. The point he was able to stand up to the most educated, well-trained Jewish men from the most respected Jewish schools. And they could not refute him. They could not tear down his arguments. They could not undo his points. He knew his stuff well. And this is important. It's not just res- no, we're not just to be called to, to be loving, compassionate, meet the needs of the people. We are called to know the Word of God to stand our ground and our defense of the gospel. But at the same time, that's not the only thing you're supposed to be doing. You're also supposed to be meeting the needs of the people well. And so this is the point that Constable made in that quote, is that the church was good and was healthy in both areas, the gospel and combating the injustice of the world, standing up for the word of God and meeting the needs of the people. Yet, They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit of which he spoke. Then, verse 11, Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard this man speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They incited the people and the elders and the experts in the law, and then they approached Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. They brought forward false witnesses who said, This man does not stop saying these things against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him saying that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the council looked intently at Stephen and saw his face was like the face of an angel. They couldn't refute him, so they decided to falsely accuse him and destroy his reputation and kill him. Right? That's what the world's always been doing. You can't corrupt Joseph into having sex with you so that you can bring down his influence so you falsely accuse him, destroy his reputation, so he's destroyed. We see this over and over what Satan does. If they can't compromise you morally, then they will falsely accuse you. That's the goal of Satan. And so this is what they do to Stephen. And they bring up false charges on him. So first, accusation against him. It was that he was blaspheming the law of Moses by changing the customs probably refuting certain laws and saying we didn't have to do those anymore. Second, that he was speaking against the temple, specifically that Jesus would destroy. Now, technically, Jesus actually did say that. Tear down this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And then he also prophesied that a day is coming when Israel will reject the gospel to the point that that the Romans will come in and not leave one stone standing in this city of Jerusalem, which would happen in 70 AD. These are the two major charges. You have to understand, for the Jews of this time period, their identity, their identity as Jews was found in three things. First, they were physical, biological descendants of Abraham. We are Jews because we came from Abraham. Second, they were marked by circumcision. There's actually four things, I apologize. They're marked by these four things. They physically are circumcised, and they can show you in the public baths I truly am a Jew and I've been marked by God. Like God clearly said in Genesis 17, if you do not remove that part of your body, then I will remove you from my covenant. And they're like, see, I'm a part of the covenant. Third, they had been given the law of Moses, not anybody else. God chose them and gave them the law and they have the law. And fourth, They have the temple. We have the house of God. God doesn't live with you. He lives with us in Jerusalem and Judea. And the Jewish identity was found in these four things. Therefore, they believe that this is what gave them salvation. I am a descendant of Abraham who is circumcised. If I'm circumcised, therefore, I'm a part of the covenant. And the covenant is life and salvation. And I have the law and I have the temple. And now my primary life and goal is to work and live a life in such a way to prove to you that I have the law and I'm part of the temple. They did not believe that works saved them. Nobody actually believes that. Everybody knows that they're flawed enough to know that that's not going to save them. They believe that they were chosen, that they had the law, they had the temple. Therefore, they must look like it and live up to it. So yes, works was really important to them. And they prided themselves on their works, but I am able to be like this because I am chosen, and I have the law, and you cannot be like this because God didn't choose you. God may love you, but I am his favorite. This is what this is their identity, and so, yes, Stephen's not blaspheming the law. why would he? The law came from God. he's not anti temple, okay. God is the one who commanded the tabernacle. Now, he's a little anti-temple, but not completely. He's not anti-tabernacle. He's not anti-the house of God. He's not doing that. But this is what their identity is. So they hear one little thing that questions that. And they go ape. And they freak out and flip out. And they're mad. And so these are false accusations. Even though God doesn't live in the temple anymore, clearly demonstrated by the fact that the Shekinah glory of God departed in 586 B.C. and never has returned, it doesn't change the fact that none of them have ever experienced the Shekinah glory of God. We're hundreds of years after that. They've never seen it. They have old stories in the Bible. That's it. But what they do know is that God commanded them to have a house god destroyed it they rebuilt it haggai and Zechariah told them rebuild the temple if you don't then god won't bless you so they assume that god is still living there even though it's not physically demonstrated they believe that he is so therefore you're going against the house of god god worship could only be done in the temple And the political power of the Sadducees was found in the temple. They controlled the temple. They controlled the sacrifices. If you can control the religion of a people, that makes you far more powerful than if you control anything else. You control the beliefs. You control their ability to atone for their sins. That makes you far more powerful. In fact, at this time of Israel, they became known as a temple state. Their power was found, the state The power, the government, was found in the temple. This is the heart of their power. This is the heart of their pride. This is the same accusations they brought against Jesus. The same accusations they brought against Jesus. Thus, Stephen's words especially threatened their sense of identity and power. And so they attacked not so much to defend Yahweh, but their identity and their social-political structures that gave them power. This is what it's really about. The minute Stephen said a little tiny negative thing about this or that, and not really negative against it, but just their understanding of it, they immediately saw that a threat, not to, we're going to defend God and protect the word of God, but they're threatening our political social status and power. And that's what they're going after. And that will be demonstrated at the end of Stephen's speech. We will see this.